Thank you all for giving me the opportunity tonight to uh, to speak as we do continue our summer series on renewal, on renewing our strength. And tonight, of course, we're going to be focusing on renewing our unity. I appreciated Steve and, and Marcus's lessons the last couple of weeks about renewing our love for the lost, renewing our mission. And if you remember from a couple of weeks ago uh, from Steve's lesson, he closed with the point that A unified body is the foundation for our outreach. And Steve read the prayer of Jesus from John 17 to remind us of the vision that Jesus had for his followers. And and I'd like to read a few verses from that to continue that thought uh, tonight. After Jesus prays for his disciples to be in the world, but not of it, and to be sanctified In the truth, he says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. If you go to the next slide, uh, you're going to see a graphic of world religions that, as you can see, it's, it's expanding from, from the middle outward. As time goes on, uh, you see religions expanding and, and growing and uh, you see from the middle, which, which is the time of Jesus until present day as, as you move outward. And in many ways, this, this graphic is not designed to be shown on a slide because it's, it's so incredibly detailed. But I think it illustrates something interesting, something convicting that, that we need to take notice of. The entire right side of the tree is... Christianity in, in, a, in a much broader sense. And as you can see, there, there are quite a few branches uh, that are increasingly dispersed as we move out uh, into present day. And as we get further and further out, we, we see that there are 395 branches of Christianity uh, uh, today. And, and that number is probably significantly understated, but these are the most notable branches of Christianity that have been, been quantified here. And, and I, don't, I don't share this to suggest in the slightest that we, we should disregard the things that bring us to this place and the reasons why you and your family have chosen to worship here with this family, with the congregation that's built on the values that it's built on and the things that bring us together with this family. But how do you think God feels when he sees Christianity, when he sees the history 
of Christianity as it's shown in this context? Is he proud when he sees this? Is he excited? Is he encouraged? Or does it, does it break his heart to know how divided Christians have become today? Think back to those words of Jesus that we read a minute ago. That prayer was uttered in the final moments before Jesus was taken captive. These words were on the heart of Jesus just before His own betrayal and death. How incredible is it that in that moment, Jesus thought intently about the unity of His followers. Three times over, He prays that His followers would be one. That's the vision that Jesus had for His followers, and that's the hope that He took with Him to the cross, that He prayed with earnest confidence that His followers would be one. Why do you think Jesus chose to pray those words three times over for His followers? Why was that, why was that so important to Him? Jesus understood that Satan would do anything to divide His people. Satan knows that, that when, the, when the sheep are together, when they're with the shepherd, that they can't be harmed. And so Satan tries everything that he can to divide them, to isolate them from each other so that, that when they're deceived into thinking the sheep, he can attack them. And Jesus, he knew that. He understood that. And he knew how great the struggle would be as his followers pursued the vision that he had for oneness and unity. Think about the last year and a half. We've talked about, you know, you can see the last 2,000 years. Think about just the last year even. Can you think of anything that's causing division and separation among Christians? Division among the church. Division even within our own body. Think of how Satan's attacking the church with everything that he can to drive division between us. And not, not just us as Christians, but the world, right? We see that the world is struggling. We see the world is fighting. The world is hating. The world is hurting. The world is devolving into chaos. Can you feel Satan trying to pull Christians into that chaos? Trying to pull us into that hatred? Do you feel that in your personal relationships? Do you feel that in your interactions in the church? Do you feel that in your family, with your friends? But isn't this, isn't this also the time when we need, we need a unified body the most, right? We, in, in many ways, I, I've never felt hungrier to be with a unified body than in the last year, right? All the time we've spent apart from each other. And in so many ways, I'm thankful for the efforts made by so many to bring us together, to connect us from afar as best we can. But I've been so hungry to be with you all. And I know many of you feel those same feelings because this is home. This is, this is our home base, right? And, and we miss it when we're away. But we need this place to be unified in God's Spirit especially at a time when the divisions in our world are being so, so clearly displayed. But think of the word unity. Think about the feelings that that word brings up for you. You know, when, when you 
when you got here and, and I get up and you see we're talking about renewing our unity, you know, how does that make you feel? I'm sure, you know, part of us is excited that we're talking about this. I, I, I think we understand it's important, but doesn't it make you just a little bit nervous when we start using that word? Do you get uncomfortable thinking and talking about unity? I think unity makes us afraid at times, right? It, we think of the message of unity that the world gives us, that you know we need to love each other no matter what, that we need to ignore any differences between us, that we should get over any wrongs done to each other. And all that sounds good on the surface, right? But when we see that applied, misapplied in the world, whenever we see you know, that applied except to those people, whenever we see, you know, people expecting that to be returned to them, but then if I disagree with you, then, you know, they fail to apply that to me. You know, we see the, the hypocritical way that unity and love and grace are applied in the world, and I think we allow that to scare us a little bit into diving into this idea. And, and you know, I think, I don't know about you, but my natural reaction is to kind of shy away from the idea of addressing unity, uh, you know, for all those reasons. And, and I almost chose a different topic because I was afraid of where, where the discussion on unity would lead us. But ultimately, that's what led me to want to talk about that tonight was because it's not an easy topic. You know, it, it's a hard topic and it's an important topic. And I think we throw it around a lot on the surface but when we start trying to embrace it in our relationships, it gets difficult. We can talk about unity theoretically, but in many ways it's sensitive for us to discuss, and, and yet we need our unity to be renewed now more than ever. And, and with all that being said, unity and oneness are such incredibly important topics in the Bible, and I think you'd be surprised and reading the gospel message and reading the epistles, just how often unity is mentioned, and, and not, not just mentioned, but made a point of focus and emphasis through you know, the words of Jesus and the words of Paul and by the example of the early church uh, that we see. And so I want to jump, jump through a few verses just to give you an idea of examples of unity and oneness from the Bible. So you see here in Psalm 133, behold how good and pleasant is it when brothers dwell in unity. We see in Acts chapter 2, the example of the early church right after that first wave of, of conversions, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. We see that they're sharing their possessions, they're you know, breaking bread in each other's house on a daily basis, and, and you see that unity and oneness right from the very start. And we see in Acts chapter 4, that same kind of language in verse 32. Now the full member of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And then we see getting into Paul's letters in, in 1 Corinthians, we see, you know, think of all the issues that the Corinthian church was dealing with. All of the things that, you know, Paul does get into in his letter. But right after his greeting, this is the first thing that he says in verse 10 of chapter 1. 
I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same. From the very start is oneness. Think of all those issues they were dealing with, but Paul says, the thing I'm really concerned about, that everything else is feeding into, is that this is going to divide you. And then he bookends you know, his discussion with the Corinthians, and we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, he closes his letter with this thought. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Jumping to Galatians, we see this type of language where, you know, of course, Paul's building up for chapters to get to this, but he ultimately concludes, because of everything that Jesus has done, because of everything that he's done for you, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 1, if you remember way back when, a few days ago, Wes was talking about Philippians and about how we misapply that uh, verse about working out our own salvation, right? But really, in reality, it's all about selfless unity. And we see in Philippians chapter 1, let's read a a few of those verses again, uh, starting in verse 27 there. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in any way by your opponents. And then a few verses later, Paul says, if, if Christ has done anything for you, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then one more example here out of Colossians, we see just the beautiful, beautiful language from chapter 3 of Colossians that Paul's encouraging them. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. And, and that's, that's I, I stepped through several examples there, but that really is just a taste of the language that's throughout the gospel message on unity. And I'd encourage you the next time you're reading through the gospels and in particular the epistles to just take notice of how often unity is not only mentioned, but is a point of emphasis Uh, by the writers to the early church. But tonight, with the rest of our time, I'd really like to spend a few minutes looking at the book of Ephesians because I really think from beginning to end, we see Paul driving home the importance of unity in that whole concept. In Acts chapter 19, we see the account of Paul going to Ephesus. And we see that he spent about two years there that really were incredibly effective. We see Paul spent 
about three months in the synagogue, reasoning with the Jews. And, and once he got kicked out of the synagogue, he spent the rest of his time there reasoning with the Gentiles to, to the point where Luke said that all the residents of Asia, meaning Ephesus and its surrounding area, had heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so Paul had this incredibly effective outreach to the Ephesians where you know, he evangelizes both a lot to both Jews and Greeks. And then ultimately during his imprisonment in Rome, uh, he ends up writing this letter to the church there. And, and as I got more and more into the letter, I you know, saw verses here and there and then just realized really from beginning to end, Paul's message is all about focusing on the unity of the body. And so I'd love for us to walk through the book and I'll, I'll highlight a few key verses as we consider all the things that, that I've brought up so far, and, and I think we'll find ourselves to be admonished and encouraged from that. And so we see Paul open his letter to the Ephesians with these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us, with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And did you catch that there at the end? What a powerful statement about the importance that God places on unity, that since the world began, God's special plan and purpose was to unite all things in Christ. That was His special purpose from the very beginning. And don't we see that when we look back at creation? What kind of world did God make for His creation to live in? It's one of harmony and one of peace and one of love and one of oneness. God being in harmony with man and man being in harmony with creation all while the, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are themselves in harmony. And, and of course, we have the fall where you know, man disrupts that harmony, but, but we see God all throughout history pointing forward to the unity of all things that he'd hoped for. Think about the promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where he tells Abraham that in him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Not just Abraham's descendants, not just, you know, his family, but all the nations of the earth would experience God's blessings through what he would accomplish with Abraham. Even then, we see God looking forward to that time when Christ would become the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, the fulfillment of the purpose behind creation, the fulfillment of all the hopes of not only the nation of Israel, but all the nations of the earth, and how by making a way for all people to be united in Christ through the forgiveness God offers by His grace. I think it's critical that, that we understand that God's goal 
His end goal was not the forgiveness of sins. Of course, we we understand that forgiveness was necessary and is necessary because of sin, but the forgiveness of sins was not in itself what God was seeking. God is in the business of reconciling. God is in the business of unifying. God is in the business of restoring. Restoring that harmony and peace in which humanity was made. Forgiveness was a step on that path, but God's intent all along was the unity of all things in Christ, as we see there in verse 10. And Paul goes on to tell the Ephesians that God has given them an inheritance that is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. And Paul then prays for them that they would have their hearts and their minds opened to understand the hope that God has called them to, the riches that He's promised them, and the immeasurable greatness of His power for His people. And then we see in verses 22 and 23 that Paul states, And God put all things under Christ's feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And what a wonderful, what a wonderful thought that is, that the church is, is the fullness of the one who's the head over all things, the one who fills all things. And I, I think Paul's speaking to the fact that the church is where the fulfillment of God's purpose is visible. It's where God's plan for unity the unity of all things is on display for the world to see. It's where it's manifested. It's where it's completed. That's God's vision for His church. And we see Paul continue to talk to the Ephesians about how they were dead in their sins and their trespasses, but God extended His grace to them and He saved them despite their unworthiness. And Paul, still recognizing that they've been saved by grace, and not by their works, he, he tells the Ephesians that God has prepared good works for them to do that they should walk in them. And then picking up there in chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, Strangers to the covenant, covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Look at those words used to describe the Gentiles. Separated, alienated, strangers, hopeless, without God. That's where they were. But look, look now in verse 13. But now in Christ, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And I love the language all throughout that section on how God is uniting two groups of people that are are so incredibly different. And I, I know you all understand the differences between Uh, the Jews and the Gentiles. But isn't it interesting that God is so intent and Paul is so intent on reconciling these two groups together? How much easier would it have been if they just had two congregations? How much easier would it have been for them? And they're both followers of Jesus, but they more or less just stay to themselves. How much pain would they have avoided if they had just not insisted on being together? How much more comfortable would it have been if those two groups that are so different from each other chose not to work through the pains that being in one congregation brought? But remember God's purpose. God desired for His people to be an example to the world that all things were unified. It was divided. It was fighting. It was hurting. It was hating, and it was really just tearing itself apart. But his special purpose was to reconcile and unify people back to each other and to reconcile a unified people back to himself. God purposed to have a group of people that were evidence that through God's Spirit, that purpose was being accomplished. A group where the dividing walls of hostility were being broken down. And don't we need those dividing walls of hostility to be broken down today? And I understand that Paul here is talking about that law of commandments, right? That divided that divided the Jews from the Gentiles. But we see, don't we feel that pressure, feel that building of those walls of hostility that are being put up in our own context today? And we see how how Satan tries to build those walls of hostility among the church. It's imperative that we are intent on tearing down the walls of hostility that are among us so that instead of being hostile toward each other, we can work toward our collective unity. Think about the metaphor that Paul uses here to illustrate God's people. You know, Paul's talking about how God, brick by brick, person by person, working together to form one structure. And why is that? So that God could dwell among his people. A unified and complete temple made up of all of God's followers is the place where God desires to dwell. And Paul uses this language to remind them that, you know, firstly, each of them is part of something much bigger than themselves. And further, that the structure isn't complete if even a single brick is missing. Paul goes on to describe how the mystery of the gospel has been revealed to the Gentiles, that they're given access to the promises that God made to Israel, and that they will share in this inheritance alongside the Jews. Paul prays that the Ephesians would recognize how great the love is that God has demonstrated to them because of that wonderful purpose brought about in Christ. And Paul prays that that God would use the church 
to be glorified. And, and then he begins here in chapter 4 where we will pick up. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. And, you know, West does a great job of pointing out, therefore, everything that he said up into this point is leading into these words that, that Paul has to say about unity. I, Paul, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And aren't those words, those last words in particular, convicting for us? Are we eager, as we should be, to maintain unity in God's Spirit? And I know that, at least for me, if I'm being honest, I'm not eager. I'm not passionate. I'm not longing to maintain unity. And I think we often fail to embrace a pursuit of unity in the way that God's purpose and his calling would have us to. But look at those words that Paul brings up before that. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Don't we need those things? Don't we long for those things from our church family? But why do we need them? Why do we long for those things? Why are those things that are in line with God's will? Because they drive us to be a unified people, which is God's special purpose for us. Continuing there in verse 4, Paul says, There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, and through all, and in all. And I love these verses because I think it really gets right to the heart of what God sees for unity. People are unified for any number of reasons, right? Think, think of the things that unify groups of people in the world. There are countless things that people look to to, to share in together that, that really reveals something about our nature, doesn't it? That we're longing for, for a unified community. But here's a key point that, that I think our world often fails to recognize, and that's that unity requires a foundation. Unity requires a foundation. Unity without a foundation is not unity at all. And consider the things that the world unifies on. Consider the things that people build their identities around. Is there anything that the world unifies on that will truly last? Is there anything that the world unifies on that's truly perfect? Everything that the world unifies on is fading away. But we, among God's people, build our foundation on this, on the oneness of the body of the Spirit, the hope of our calling, the Lord, the faith, the baptism, the God and Father of all. Consider those things. Dwell on those things. These are the things on which our unity is based. And these are the things that we as a body have to be unified on. And if we're unified in our hearts and our minds on these things, then nothing else remains to divide us. Our hope our faith, our baptism compel us to love each other, to care for each other, to be one with each other. And if we're united in those things, then we begin to allow God to tear down 
those dividing walls of hostility. Paul then talks about how Christ has given gifts to His people and and He did so for a special purpose, right? Continuing there in verse 11. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him, uh, into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And I know this may not be a new thought, but I think it's a powerful one, that our gifts, our talents, our abilities are not for our own benefit. They're for building up the body so that the body can be unified in faith. Think about the implications of that truth and of this analogy. We don't have time to fully explore that analogy of how the church is a body, but think about the dependence that the different parts of the body have on each other. Think about those outside the body who desperately need the care that the body provides. Doesn't that change our attitude about somebody outside of the body? Doesn't that generate compassion for those who don't have the unity of the body that Paul speaks of here. And as we think about how many people are outside of the body who have God-given gifts that are wasting away, remember that the structure is not complete if even a single brick is missing. The body is not whole if even a single part is missing. The body needs what those outside of it could offer. And God, by His grace, is working to restore the body so that we can be whole again together. And look there at verse 14. The unity of the body is what will allow us to mature so that we can stand firm against the waves and against the wind that attack us. And haven't haven't we already talked about the waves and the winds that we feel today? But Paul, Paul tells us that a unified body unified on that foundation of Christ, is one that will stand in the midst of the waves and wind. And Paul carries that thought through the rest of his letter to the Ephesians. He encourages them to be unified in all that they do, to be unified in the church, unified in their marriages, unified in their families, unified even as slaves and masters. And how? By, by embracing a humility, a gentleness, that love and care that the Spirit of God is bringing about in His people. And I I know we're running out of time here, so let me close by leaving you with a few points uh, to take away uh, as we we head on home. First point here is that God's special plan before we were ever created was to unite all things in Christ. God had unity in mind before the foundation of the world, and it's central to the gospel message. The second point here, when unity gets hard, lean in. 
Unity is hard, right? It's easy to talk about it sometimes, but it's hard to live out. When unity gets hard, lean in. It was hard for the early church to be unified, and it, it's hard for us today, isn't it? But we don't choose unity because it's easier. We choose it because it's better. And so I encourage you when unity gets hard to, to lean into those relationships. And you may not see that, that unity and oneness that you're hoping to see today, but that's where faith comes in, and we believe that God will bless our efforts as we seek to be a unified church. And then finally, I pray that together we as a church family can embrace God's vision, His passion, and His priority for unity. And so with that thought, let's uh, pray and then we'll be dismissed. God, we, we come before You humbled. We come before You recognizing the brokenness that Christians are experiencing in, in the world today, God. And we, we know that we're part of that. We know that we have contributed or maybe even are contributing to the brokenness that we have seen devastate churches, devastate relationships, devastate church families, God. And we're humbled by that. And we're so sorry that we've done that. But God, we pray with a great hope and a great confidence that your spirit is working among your, your church, among your people, to break down the walls of hostility, to break down the things that divide us, that, that we can be built up together as one body, as one structure, to your glory, God, on the foundation of Christ. And so I pray, God, that as we go about our relationships today and this week and, and moving forward, God, that we would have unity on our hearts and our minds and that we would be committed to your vision, your pursuit, your passion for unity, God, that we know you call us to. We love you and we praise you and we thank you for all that you've done for us, especially through Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.